Why was Caitlin Long unfairly denied a banking license by the Federal Reserve? Was it because of Bitcoin or because she wanted a fully reserved bank? The answer is going to surprise you. The Federal Reserve is currently attacking Bitcoin businesses. Are they? Are they not? And it's choke point 2.0, only going to get worse from here. We're going to discuss all of this and more in today's exclusive interview with Banking Insider, Caitlin Long. But before we get into it, as a reminder, I am not a financial advisor. Everything you hear from this podcast is strictly the opinion of Caitlin and myself is not an opinion of the companies that we work for. Also, big shout out to the boys down at Pleb Lab. Carr and his team are doing outstanding work by building the number one hacking space in the Bitcoin space where developers of all over the globe can go and present their ideas, have and work with outstanding developers such as Super Testnet and others. And uh, they have great events always going on. So be sure to support them. You can use our lightning door at the very front to scan and get a day pass. And if you're not in the Austin area, feel free to support them. Send them some sats, uh, buy a ticket for some event, even if you can't make it. Everything helps. Uh, down at Pleb Lab, they're trying to build a big developer space, but it's very difficult in this bear market. So, you know, take it from your hearts, plebs, go ahead and uh, give anything that you can to uh, Pleb Lab and the boys down there. Every sat counts. They're trying to help develop one of the best uh, co-working spaces for Bitcoiners and only Bitcoiners. All right. Now let's get right into the show. Whoosh. All right. Well, Caitlin, you're thank you so much for joining the program and coming on to the State of Bitcoin podcast. But to start it off, you're one of the few people that has ever been denied by a banking charter and by the Fed. And you probably learned more about the Fed than most people have throughout this process. We're going to get all into all that. But I heard you recently on a podcast talking about how confusing it is that somebody like SBF got a one hour meeting uh, with the Fed. So, you know, I, I kind of want to dive into that a little bit. So, uh, you know, what do you think, I guess, uh, is the reasoning behind that? And, yeah, wh why SBF getting getting that one-hour meeting with Jerome Powell and the Fed? I have no idea. And <laughs> I have no idea what they talked about. All I know is it's public information. It happened on February 1st, 22. And uh, Larry Fink had a call, of the CEO of BlackRock had a call with Jay Powell in that same month. That's His calendar is public information, so anyone can go peruse it. And Larry Fink only got 15 minutes and <laughs> Sam Bankman-Fried got an hour. Uh, I, I repeatedly asked to spend time with the decision makers and uh, was never granted that. So, All right. Well, yeah, I mean, I, it doesn't really make any sense why, you you know, it seems like Custodia Bank is almost like a, um, you know, I, almost like a black sheep, so to speak. So, you know, I guess, why do you feel like, uh, you know, the banking license and there's been a lot of difficulty because, you know, it seems kind of logical. You guys want to be a fully reserved bank. Do you think it's, that's the issue or do you think maybe it's more of the connection with, with Bitcoin or something along those lines? Uh, oh no, it's the fact that it wasn't one of the old white boys club. I'm going to be blunt. <laughs> I mean, uh, um, it, it's, it's, it, we were just too different. Uh, that that's the bottom line. If you, there's 86 pages of that, right. The, the longest ever previous fed denial ever published in history was three pages. So that gives you a sense of how precedent setting this was, but, uh, but, but, but seriously, um, there is such an incumbency bias and in, in, in we're seeing it, of course, everyone's all excited about BlackRock with the SEC. And obviously we saw it 
um, Bank of New York Mellon was approved to do Bitcoin in ETH custody last fall. Here comes a startup that is literally begging to be re regulated by the Fed and uh, gets a torpedo shot at it, uh, like you said, uh, designed to, um, to, to, to slander. The interesting question is, though, I would twist it uh, back and say, we're the bank that is owned and controlled by true Bitcoiners. Not, not everyone at my uh, custodia is a Bitcoiner. Some are not. We have a diversity, and I think that diversity is healthy. However, uh, <laughs> it's it, it's uh, it, yes, of course, the, uh, the 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 establishment doesn't love the fact that somebody's coming and challenging the Fed. However, I think the vast majority of people don't look at us as that. They look at us more as the David and Goliath that is actually revealing a lot um, by nature of the fact that the Fed itself has revealed a lot, to your point, um, about the process and how much uh, it, it, number one, favors incumbents, number two, doesn't, doesn't it just is allergic to anything new and different. And I would say this is a big issue. I, I wouldn't even put it at Bitcoin itself, right? Because there are none similarly situated applicants for Fed master accounts of which only four are touching crypto. The other five are not. There are insured state charter banks that like custodia the FDIC refused to provide FDIC insurance for. Okay. And so they, or, or they decided not to apply, but most of them did like custodia apply to become FDIC insured and essentially got told no from what I understand. Okay. And so yet now we're, we're all stuck, right? Because the federal reserve act requires the Federal Reserve to provide services to all eligible depository institutions. And there are nine of us, of which only four are involved in crypto, that are that are stuck with the Fed not law, not not adhering to the law. And here's the funny thing: the Monetary Control Act of 1980 that put that law in place that said every eligible depository institution shall keep their reserves at the Federal Reserve, and the Federal Reserve shall provide services every eligible depository institution in the United States, guess who begged for that law to be passed in 1980? It was the Fed itself. And now they're just ignoring it, okay? And we've seen cases in the Supreme Court where there's been a discussion when federal agencies reinterpret longstanding laws uh, to mean something different than they have interpreted it for decades. Uh, and it's now up to the courts to determine if that is going to stand or not. And uh, so, it, you know, it's really funny. We just got a phone call today from a Fortune 10 company. Um, and, you know, they've been watching us and they know exactly where we are and they know what happened to us and they're not afraid to, to talk to us. Um, and, and same thing with our partners. Custodia is live. Uh, not in all states. Check our website for for to see if we're live in your state. And uh, for important disclaimers, we're not live in every state with every product either. Uh, but we are live with U.S. dollar services and with money market fund services. And we have some terrific partners who did due diligence on us. Obviously, they saw what the Fed said about us, and we got an unbelievable amount of scrutiny, and we passed. So there you have it. Uh, but but I, but I will say, if Bitcoiners don't support a bank that is is run by and controlled by Bitcoiners, look at who our, our shareholders are, uh, then um, 
it, it really will be a crying shame. And, and I do encourage everybody in this industry to reach out to us because look at what happened with Silvergate and Signature and look at the scramble that happened when those banks were closed. And uh, we're trying to solve that very problem for the industry. So, so folks, please do reach out. We are, uh, we are, I think, in a lot of folks' eyes, fighting the fight that, that they wish they could fight. And we really could use your support by doing business with us if, you, if we're licensed to do so and if you qualify to have an account at Custodia. So please reach out. Custodiabank.com. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And I'll put all that in the show notes as well so you can check out where they're live in every state and everything like that. But um, I, I kind of wanted to get into it. You mentioned like Silvergate and, you know, some of the other big banking failures. So, you know, as you're going through this process, kind of learning about, you know, the, the Fed kind of as they're continuing to raise interest rates throughout the, the rest of the year, I'll leave it sort of broad. Like, how do you see the overall like health of the banking industry right now as somebody that's that's kind of like directly in it? It's not healthy. And to be candid, some of the things that Custodia uncovered during our application process reveal why it's not healthy uh, in the sense that uh, there is just rigidity. I talked about this in, yesterday in a tweet thread about a Financial Times article that some of the neobanks in, in the EU are struggling. And well, the regulators are saying that they aren't up to big standards on certain things like risk management, operational risk, et cetera. Well, gee, does that sound familiar? Those are the, some of the same things that the Fed said about custodia. Well, then you quickly realize, all right, what does it mean? What do they really mean by that? Those are easy cudgels for them to use against anybody who's different. If you go look at the bank examination manual, you quickly realize that anything that doesn't look like a traditional bank is going to have a problem. So, and I'll give you an example. The, the latest proposed new capital requirements that are going to be pushed down to banks $100 billion or more, it used to be $250 billion. The incremental capital, the incremental regulations to implement that are 1,098 pages, okay? So imagine how many gotchas there are in 1,098 pages of regulations. Now, we are, it's almost like Custodia's management team ran towards the fire because we understood how important banking was to the Bitcoin industry. You still need to deal in US dollars. The Bitcoin companies still need to pay vendors in US dollars, even if they're paying your employees in, in, exclusively in Bitcoin, they still need US dollars. Okay. And we still, as an industry, we, the Royal, we still rely upon the ability for US dollars to move back and forth in and out of Bitcoin. Right now, custody is not an exchange, but we are a bank that will integrate and work with exchanges so that you can have US dollar services. It is, a, it is really scary. And, and how, how few you, how few banks are willing to work with this industry. And I salute the ones, just like I did in the last bear market, I saluted Silvergate and Signature for being for having the fortitude to deal with the regulatory pressures that they were getting from their regulators. Where they made mistakes are they did not look at the liabilities as hot money liabilities as they should have. And Custodia understands all of these deposits could literally disappear in the span of minutes, right? 
Um, and so we have to hold assets that can be liquidated to be able to pay off depositors in the span of minutes. If you look at the collapse of Terra Luna, it happened in six hours. Okay, so I'm not talking literally 10 minutes. It's going to happen over the span of six hours, as Terra Luna example. Um, and we we now have the Silicon Valley Bank example as well. That happened in the span of about 48 hours. But the point is, if you don't have liquid assets to be able to 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 give your depositors their money back on demand, then you've got a problem. Okay, and and that is where Silvergate and Signature really dropped the ball. Custodian's proposal was to hold 108 cents for every dollar of deposits in cash in our account at the Fed. Guess how much cash Silvergate held for every dollar of deposits? Take a wild. Maybe 20, 20 cents? 10, 10. 10. Right? Yeah. So it could only withstand one tenth of its with one tenth of demand deposits being withdrawn in a short period of time. Custodia is designed to be able to withstand. 108% of its demand deposits being withdrawn in a short period of time. Huge difference, huge. Uh, and Ryan Selkis, I always like to, to give him credit because Masari has been talking about this for years, that the single point of failure in all of crypto, not just Bitcoin, but crypto as well, is US dollar banking. We were, we were very concentrated in a small number of banks and oh boy, did a, was there a scramble. A lot of folks ended up going offshore, but the moment you go offshore for your U.S. dollars, it's all, it's going to be harder for you to come back because you're going to be deemed higher risk if, if the bank that you were banking with was in, you know, Malta or, you know, even Hong Kong, right? Um, so, you know, I think there's, there's the, the folks that have the fortitude to stay and figure out how to get this done, and I am confident we will figure out how to get this done, um, are the ones that, that I'm suggesting that you should be supporting, of which one is Custodia. And one other piece of this puzzle, the, the ice has already started to thaw, right? When the Fed put out that 86-page order about Custodia in January, it was a hell no 18 minutes from Sunday, right? They literally threw the book at us at, with all kinds of disparaging and, and factually incorrect information that the Fed refused to correct. That speaks volumes right there. But also on top of that, um, in, uh, in early August, they had, the Fed announced they have a novel activity supervision program. Okay, so what happened between January 27th and August 10th or whatever date it was? What happened? They figured out Bitcoin didn't die. <laughs> and all of a sudden now there's a new novel activity supervision program and they don't have it staffed. In fact, uh, you can go do the same search I did. Just type in novel activity supervision in LinkedIn, and you'll see which, you'll see how many people work for it and what their backgrounds are. Um, uh, but it's also, uh, we, we, we have Fed insiders who are helping us interpret how things, what things mean. Uh, and they pointed out that in one of the, that, that in that announcement with those new supervisory letters, they're typically, those were unusual. They looked rushed to, to the, 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 the Fed insiders. And the reason, we don't know why, but they did look rushed because typically when a supervisory letter comes out, there is a point of contact for examiners to call if they have any questions. That wasn't in, the, in this announcement. 
And more importantly, they typically point to pages in the supervisory exam manual, which is, you know, way thick, um, that examiners must adhere to when they examine a bank. And so all the new rules and regulations will have already been implemented into the new supervisory exam manual by the time a supervisory letter like that comes out. That didn't happen in this case. Okay, so that tells you something's up. Um, the Fed is now trying to get ahead of it, but um, after seven months after uh, it did what it did to Custodia. Um, however, uh, we're, we're, it's far from over for us. Uh, as as you know, we have our pending lawsuit. Uh, uh, I can only speak factually about that, other than just just to point out that the uh, the Fed has tried multiple times to have that dismissed, and it was not dismissed, and uh, it is in discovery process right now, and two other lawsuits testing the same statutory question have been filed just this summer. And from what I understand, more are on the way. Yeah, and that's never a good thing, right? Because uh, lawsuits tend to, tend to cost a, a pretty penny, unfortunately. But I want to get back to the, the fractional reserve point that you brought up, right? I mean, it seems like it's a no-brainer what you guys are doing, you know, the the 108 cents per per every dollar. And, you know, you see what happens when yeah, you have 10 cents on the dollar in the fractional reserve banking system. Why do you think that there's such, I guess, like, you know, maybe a pushback from what you guys are trying to do at Custodia? Do you think like it, it'll kind of, I guess, set a precedent for more banks like going forward and that, you know, simply like banks just can't afford to do it at this time? Like, why, why do you think that there's such, I guess, disconnect there when it when it comes to the fractional reserve banking system with what you guys are trying to, to do? Well, it, there's we're, there's really no difference between what we're trying to do and what payment companies are trying to do that have money transmitter licenses, except they're doing it outside of the regulatory perimeter, and they are relying on a back-end bank to clear their payments. And what I mean by that is the money transmission regime in the United States requires 100% reserves. There's something called permissible investments. And those permissible investments are generally what, would, what the bankers would call level one high-quality liquid assets. It's mostly cash and treasuries. And it's pretty short term. There's different states will allow a little bit of, of asset risk. I don't believe in any of that. I believe in keeping the balance sheet as liquid and proving solvency as one possibly can. It's, it's, it, it, I don't want to put my name to a bank that's going to fail. So, so I, I'm very, very cognizant of not using leverage and not taking asset risk for exactly that reason. Um, but this is the point. It's really, if you, if you strip away the regulatory wrappers, we, we already have 100% reserve quote unquote banks. Now they're not licensed to be able to bank directly at the Fed. They're not licensed to clear US dollars. They have to rely upon a back-end bank in order to do that. And a lot of Bitcoin companies are using companies like those right now. What, what, what you end up having with that arrangement is two things. You have higher, well, three things, higher cost, delay, because you got multiple companies involved in settling and clearing the US dollar piece. Um, and really importantly, counterparty risk that bank, that clearing bank might fail, right? And if you've got a payment that's going through Silicon Valley Bank in those last few hours, right, you were sweating. You didn't know if, if the money was going to reach uh, its, its intended payee or, or whether it got caught up in Silicon Valley Bank. And with the, the FDIC insurance limit only being $250,000, if you stop and think about payrolls of businesses, probably any medium-sized business and above 
just the payroll payment alone is more than $250,000, right? And so what is happening? People have woken up and figured out, ah, I'm making an unsecured loan to my bank every time I have more than $250,000 in the bank account. And how much interest is the bank paying you? Are they compensating you for that counterparty credit risk? So going back to the point where, where Congress enacted the Monetary Control Act of 1980, one of the very important reasons it did that and, and it forced all the banks to hold reserves at the Fed and it forced the Fed to, to, to service all eligible depository institutions is because it wanted to take the counterparty credit risk out of the payment system. Back in the 1970s, only 40% of the banks banked at the Fed. The other 60% banked outside of the Fed and worked in this, in this arrangement like I just described where they're working with a back-end bank. Think about the counterparty credit risk of that. Those back-end banks were failing. Okay, and so the Fed wanted everybody and Congress decided to write it into the law. Every eligible depository institution holds its reserves at the Fed and the Fed shall provide services to it. It's crystal clear in the law, in my opinion. Um, and that's the history. So, uh, you know, we really we really do want solvent banks. That's what that's what people want. Yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, it, it is like an interesting little wrinkle here that we're getting into the, you know, the Bitcoin and the, the crypto industry where it's, you know, they, they want these solvent banks. And now it's kind of having the, the fintech aspect of things where you can check your bank accounts and you can move money directly right. and rapidly. Um, but it seems yeah. like that's that's leading by a lot of resistance as well, right? The choke point 2.0 has kind of been, um, you know, something that might have, uh, I guess, feared some some of these new banks to to get into, I guess, the crypto industry, allowing people to move Absolutely. their money into exchanges. Yeah. So, you know, after seeing like Silvergate, Silicon Valley Bank, a lot of these banks that were kind of involved in, you know, the crypto kind of crash, so to speak, uh, are do you notice, I guess, like growing fear when it comes to this industry, like kind of, I guess, you know, almost bending over in a sense and, and allowing these choke point 2.0 kind of policies to run rampant and essentially kind of block the a lot of the on ramps when it comes to, to Bitcoin and, and crypto. Yes. Yes, absolutely. It's exactly what Ryan Selkis was warned for years. And Nick Carter is absolutely right to, to coin the term Operation Choke Point 0.0. Absolutely. And, and we saw it. Custodia knew that it was happening because we got, we have receipts, we have it in email that the, all of the crypto related applicants at the Fed and the OCC had been asked to withdraw their applications. Okay. And we saw it happen with both Paxos and Protigo with the OCC. And then Custodia, of course, stood up and said, no, we're lawfully entitled to this account. We've done nothing but work with you. And all of a sudden we got blindsided. We were making lots of progress and all of a sudden we got blindsided in January. So we stood up and said no. And then of course the bazooka was shot at us and, and they, there was a lot of attempt to intimidate Custodia into withdrawing our application. I have talked about this before and, and it is in our lawsuit filings. We know the White House was involved. We were told the White House was involved by people who were involved in those actual conversations. And then there were multiple people who came forward and explained what happened to us. And it all, the puzzle pieces all fit together. There's no question. And, and it's even clear from the timeline um, that they were jamming this denial of custodia through in what is normally a Fed blackout week, um, where nothing other than FOMC matters go to the Fed governors. And, and that was because their FOMC meeting was starting the following Tuesday. And we were 
denied on Friday. Well, there was this rush to deny us. This is all in the public record. There was this rush to deny us. Wait a minute, our application had been pending since October 2020. And then there's this rush at the end of January to deny us. Well, it all got coordinated timing wise with the White House's anti-crypto announcement on January 27th. Um, and the Fed came out with another anti-crypto announcement at the same time as the White House. And then um, Custodia's application was denied as well. Uh, and then our master account was denied a couple of hours later, all very orchestrated military precision on the timing of all this and all happening during a Fed blackout week. So that speaks volumes about what really happened. Um, but we refused to be intimidated by it. And we said, no, we, you know, A, this is not going away. You, you're going to want people who are willing to be at the table with you to help you. And I'm very firm that I don't believe that Bitcoin should hurt the U.S. dollar system. I don't believe the U.S. dollar system should hurt Bitcoin. And unfortunately, both things happened in the 2022 to early 2023 period. And uh, it was because a lot of the grifters and scammers and outright criminals, including Sam Bankman-Fried, got access to Jay Powell and powerful people in Washington, D.C., and they're embarrassed about it. And I'm not pointing fingers at any one particular person, because, as you know, Sam Bankman-Fried and his acolytes spread money all around Washington, D.C., and they were horrified. And I am equally horrified by what happened there. However, what they did was try to, I think they honestly thought they were going to kill Bitcoin. And then when it didn't die, here we are seven months later, and now there's this novel activity supervision program that's been implemented at the Fed, well, that's been announced. Yeah, I mean, the, the timing definitely seems peculiar, to say the very least, right? I mean, you, you lined it out perfectly there. It just kind of, you know, it, it seems like something was definitely kind of hairy there. But, you know, it, it is interesting that, you know, we had Sam Bankman-Fried kind of get involved with a lot of this. It was during during the last bull market. We've been in kind of a bear market, which it seems like they're kind of like laying the hammer down. But yep. it, it's going to be interesting. Like we have we have a having coming up next year. Love it. Um, and you know, generally speaking, like you know, the the four year cycles, whether you believe that or not, it seems like it's it's kind of you know in in part to have another run up and uh, potentially lead into another bull market maybe towards the end of next year. Obviously not financial advice or anything like that, but uh, you know, I, I guess, do you think that the the uh, policies have been coming down harder just simply because we've seen a bear market, we've seen a lot of these, you know, like you said, like grifters kind of uh, scam tokens come in, and you know, I, after Bitcoin kind of survives throughout this, um, and you know, maybe has the next run up, there are obviously going to be more tokens that come in and try to you know profit off of Bitcoin success because uh, there's such a low barrier to entry. But do you think that the regulars are going to be more cautious maybe during the next run up? Or do you think that they'll just kind of, I, I guess, maybe uh, be a little bit more accepting, so to speak? No, I think, unfortunately, they have their head in the sand. They, they honestly thought they were going to kill crypto by killing the, all the U.S. dollar on off ramps and getting everything treated as securities. And what they're, what they're except for Bitcoin, uh, but what they're, well, and then arguably, you know, that's when BlackRock shows up magically, right? Um, so, you know, there are no coincidences in all this. And there is such an incumbency bias, especially a very large incumbency 
bias in Washington, D.C. Look at what happened to Custodia. Bank of New York Mellon got approved last fall to do exactly what Custodia had proposed, custody for Bitcoin and ETH. So um, and, and, and it is actually uh, public knowledge. We did we did publicly disclose this, that Custodia cut out the stablecoin like instrument Avit from our business plan and resubmitted our business plan to the Fed. So we literally had exactly what Bank of New York Mellon was already approved to do. U.S. dollar services and Bitcoin and ETH custody. And that's it. Vanilla, boring, low risk and still got voted down. So, again, there's such an incumbency bias. So I don't know how this all plays out, but I do I, I do not think that the Biden administration is going to give an inch. They are absolutely virulently opposed to crypto. I don't I have a non-consensus view of what happened with the SEC and the ETF. I know. Uh, well, the price is leaking back down. That does indicate that the world's starting to figure out this was not a direction from the court to to tell for, to, to tell the SEC to, to to convert the grayscale GBTC into an ETF. Not at all. It's it, they told the court we're vacating the SEC's order as arbitrary and capricious and forcing them to go back and do it over again. Now, what do you think the chances that 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 the Gensler SEC is going to find something wrong with GBTC's application again, even if it's different. So I, 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 I just am very skeptical that anything is going to happen until there's a new administration. And I don't know when that's going to be. It might be in the next presidential election or it might be another four-year cycle. Who knows? I, it, next year is just going to be wild one way or the other. But there are, there are virulently anti-crypto people in charge of the policy, and I don't see them you know, even though they've been smacked down pretty hard into very important cases against the SEC, I don't see them backing away. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense, right? Uh, exactly what you're saying. But I mean, they're they're almost like digging their feet into the farther into the sand to just I don't know. I, I they're they're so anti crypto. I don't I just don't get it at at this point. I mean, it, it seems like it's kind of obvious that you know it's Bitcoin and kind of everything else. But, you know, uh, they've had their time and it seems like they're kind of being resistant towards that. But, um, you know, when it comes to the ETF filings, right, I mean, it's kind of the, the hot button topic when it comes to like Bitcoin, Twitter and everything, the spot ETF, right? BlackRock's yeah. applying for them. And then there's been like six or seven other applications that have come in. A lot of other countries have had them approved but not the United States. So, um, you know, there's a lot of theories out there as to as to why it hasn't been approved just yet. But, you know, now that BlackRock's getting involved, they obviously have a ton of money and they're, you know, willing to, to throw a bunch towards it. So, I, you know, and they, they've kind of been cooperating with the uh, SEC, so to speak, so, so far. So, you know, how do you see that going? Uh, do you think that there's going to be, a, you know, a, a Bitcoin spot ETF coming coming soon? Or do you think that, you know, the SEC is going to still resist this. And I see you shaking your head already. Yeah, it's the latter. The SEC still, is still going to resist. This is where, it, I mean, I have no inside knowledge and I'm really not focused on the securities piece as much as I'm focused on the banking piece. I actually think the banking piece is far more significant for exactly the reason that, again, Ryan Selkis at Masari has been saying, this is our single point of failure. I get why crypto Twitter, a lot of scammers are really interested in keeping the scam swim lane open, right? Um, and, and a lot of legitimate.
the players too, but especially, I mean, there are 30,000 tokens out there right now, right? Most of them are not going to succeed. And, um, and so, you know, they, they want to try to be able to do their pre-mines and, you know, the VCs will fund them at a 20% discount. And then as soon as they do their token distribution event, then the VCs will flip to retail, the tokens, you know, run up in price and then they crash. Okay. There are big consumer protection issues with all of that. I, I get it. And, and to me, those are, especially if there's no technology, those are, those are just scams. They're pumping, they're, they're just a new version of the old, you know, penny stock pump and dumps. Okay. And the SEC absolutely should be aggressively enforcing. I am not afraid to call balls and strikes, even in the face of crypto Twitter, loving to hate on the SEC. They are, they should have been more aggressive than they have been in huge swaths of this industry. Okay. And I, I view those scams as an affront to property rights. So this is not inconsistent with the, the, um, non-aggression principle. These are affronts to property rights. They're, they're subtle ways for people to steal other people's property. And this, there's a, absolutely a legitimate f- um, role for law enforcement in those scams and frauds. And I, and I, I you know, the, the wheels of justice turn slowly. The SEC typically has five years to go after people. And I'm glad that they're going after a lot of people, they will be going after more. And I wouldn't be surprised if they do go after some of these VC firms who seem to, you know, instead of looking at venture capital as a five to seven year investment, they were looking at it as a five month quick flip, right? But that was super aggressive on the securities law side, I think. And um, and, and there are lots of rumors that that's the next wave of SEC enforcement actions. Keep in mind, they have five years. So, um, yeah, I mean, I. How does this all play out? I I don't think that the SEC is going to relent on the ETF, and I don't think that they're going to relent on the enforcement actions, and especially on the enforcement actions. I'm with them on most of those. Yeah, yeah, I hear you on, on a lot of those things too. But I, I kind of want to get back to something that you mentioned a little bit earlier, like the differences between the bank and and an exchange, right? Because we've had a lot of these exchanges fall. Right. We brought up Sam Bankman Fried and FTX, but there's also been Celsius, BlockFi, some of these others, right, that have fallen. Um, so, you, you know, just from like, uh, I guess, a, you know, a bird's eye view from here, you know, if Custodia offers custody of Bitcoin and ETH and, and whatnot, like it makes it more safe for, I guess, the uh, patron or business or whatever to hold Bitcoin with you guys opposed to, you know, maybe like a Coinbase or something like that, because you guys are FDI, uh, FDIC insured or not like, FDIC what is that? Insured. Nope. Okay. Not FDIC so insured. Then, yeah. Okay. All right. So then what's the reasoning so behind Yeah. Yeah. So what's, what's I guess, the safety factor or the safety net between like a bank and a, an exchange? Yeah. Great question. There's one, well, there, there are many, but there's one huge one, which is banks cannot be debtors in bankruptcy in the United States. What does that mean in plain English? It means that any non-bank like Celsius, like Prime Trust, can end up in Chapter 11, a bank cannot. Why do you care as a customer? Because Chapter 11, the whole goal of Chapter 11 is to maximize the estate's assets distribution to the, to the debtors. The whole goal of a receivership of a bank is to make the customers whole. Which one would you rather be in? 
in a shit hit the fan scenario. You'd rather be in a true receivership regime that puts the customer's interests before everybody else's. And that matters. The people who sign up to become banks and are willing to to submit to the, like I said, the 1,098 pages, um, just to give you one example of all the regulations that we have to comply with, there isn't anybody in the crypto industry other than Bank of New York Mellon that is complying with those regulations, okay? Um, and, and you know, we, we put some clues out in our, uh, in Custodia's announcement that we're live. We didn't do a, a broad marketing launch for obvious reasons. We're walking before we run. We're, we're going very slowly and very carefully. We've, we want to be the Bitcoin custodian for fiduciaries. What does that mean? We want to be squeaky clean. We want to bring the best customer protection to the marketplace and the best customer protection by definition, because of what I just told you about what happens in bankruptcy versus receivership is a bank. And the only banks right now, Bank of New York Mellon, arguably um, Anchorage because it's an OCC trust company and Custodia, that's it. Everybody else is a trust company and they can be dragged just like Prime Trust into bankruptcy in the event they fail. Now, what are the other protections? Capital. Custodia committed to an 8% capital level. Again, that's where that extra eight cents, so we were talking earlier, we were going to, we proposed to the Fed to hold 108 cents against every dollar of deposits. Where does the eight cents come from? It's our capital. We plan to, we propose to hold that in our Fed master account. Um, so you've got a capital cushion that you certainly don't have at the uh, at money transmitters and trust companies. You can get a trust company for $500,000 of capital, a speedy bank, it's the discussion starts at 15 million. Um, and it's a, you can see from our public disclosures, we have a lot more than that in capital. And so that's, that's loss absorption ca uh, capacity, right? It's, it's designed to protect customers. So how much capital does your Bitcoin custodian have? Do you know the answer? If you're using a custodian, you should, you should ask them that question. How much capital do they have? And then start comparing it to the, the companies that have to be capitalized accordingly. Anchorage got its OCC trust bank for a $5 million capital requirement. Again, the Wyoming Speedy, it starts at 15. And then on top of that, you've got regular examination. Why hasn't Custodia turned on its Bitcoin custody yet, even though we publicly disclosed that we filed our notice to the Wyoming Division of Banking that we're ready? The answer is because the statute requires them to come in, or rules, I think, requires them to come in and do an exam. We have no idea what the timing is for the final final green light. We have to get regulatory green light. That is literally the opposite of move fast and break things. But you know what? The tortoise beat the hare. And I'm much more interested in having a business that, that provides real value to real customers and survives the long haul. I am not interested in these Icarus-type business models where they flew too close to the sun and got burned. And the vast majority of digital asset intermediaries, including custodians, are in that category, whether they've failed yet or not. And there are some I th out there. I mean, Prime Trust obviously just failed, but but there were there there are others that were probably mortally wounded from the leverage shenanigans that took place in in the last bull market and just haven't um, haven't finally hit the wall yet. 
so beware, folks. I hope that in the next bull market, everybody does a lot more counterparty credit risk analysis if you're using any intermediary, be it an exchange, be it a custodian, or any other type of intermediary. Yeah, I got it. And thank you so much for taking that dive and that uh, explanation between the differences of the two. But I want to get into a little bit more of like the Lightning Network and kind of how that that will yeah. play into the custodian role potentially with with you guys. Because, you know, as we kind of lined out, right, a lot of the issues um, with just, you know, banks that failed, uh, or at least a lot what, what it was attuned to was essentially you could just go on your phone now, right? You can go onto your Silicon Valley Bank app and say, hey, I want to move this money ASAP from this bank to this bank. And, you know, obviously the Lightning Network can expedite that as well. Um, so do you see like any, I guess, you know, obviously you guys are doing, uh, you know, 108% of all deposits, but do you see any potential, I guess, issues with other banks trying to implement the Lightning Network because of that? Or um, do you just think like, hey, now you just have to essentially like cover your bases a little bit more? Yeah, no, it's fintechs that are implementing the Lightning Network. And I'll tell you, one of the other things about banks, they're inherently risk averse for good reason, right? So the fintechs are the ones that'll, that'll be risky. They'll move fast and break things. They don't have anywhere near the regulation that a bank has. We can debate whether those bank regulations actually succeed. But, um, but it is clear banks have a crap ton more of regulations that they have to comply with than a trust company or a money transmitter. Okay, so, and, and the fintechs are typically licensed as money transmitters, if they're even licensed at all. Um, right. So they have more flexibility than a bank. So you see Lightning Network being implemented at fintechs before it's implemented at a bank. But uh, it is not, to be clear, officially in Custodia's business plan. We are, however, watching it closely. And, uh, you know, maybe down the road we will implement it. Um, but one of the things that I like about it, uh, there's there's this whole perception that you had to earn yield on your Bitcoin. Andreas Antonopoulos had his, it has exactly the right response to that. Bitcoin is a disinflationary asset. You come out ahead just by owning it because the inflation rate of Bitcoin is a fraction of the inflation rate in fiat currencies across the board. It already is. And it's going to get even less inflationary. Um, it's not a deflationary asset because we still have a block reward. But that block reward, to your point, is about to be cut in half in, in April of 2024. And Bitcoin will become the hardest monetary commodity ever known, ever used by humankind. Um, and so why do you need yield on it? Why? You come out ahead just by holding your savings in it. Now, a lot of folks will look at it and say, well, wait a minute, there's this whole securities lending business. And how is this really different? And my Bitcoin's not doing anything if I'm just hodling it? Well, I just answered, yes, it is. But um, if, it, but here's the next point. If somebody really does feel that they don't want to just leave it, hold, just, just you know, holding it in, in a custodian or a cold wallet or, or whatever, just swirling it away, there are two things you can do. One is you can lend it out in a securities lending type program. Well, hell, we saw so so many of those programs fail. The yields that were being paid by you know, Voyager and Celsius and BlockFi didn't begin to compensate the lenders for their counterparty credit risk. But um, the Lightning Network can without creating counterparty credit risk. Now you, now you would be taking on protocol risk. If you start lending out your Bitcoin, not lending out, if you start making your Bitcoin available for use to collateralize payment channels, you will get paid fees. 
That is not lending Bitcoin. So there's no leverage in that. However, what you're doing is exposing yourself to the liquid protocol, sorry, lightning protocol. It is not as mature as the Bitcoin protocol. Uh, there are, it's got its detractors. I would encourage you before you do anything to do your research. But now you see where this is all going, that anybody who has Bitcoin held in custody might be interested in earning fees if they get comfortable that the, that the, the Lightning Network protocol is sufficiently secure and mature. Now, no bank would touch it quite yet. It needs to it needs to mature more, right? Look at what Bank of New York Mellon did. They're doing only Bitcoin and only Ethereum. Why? Because they're the oldest two protocols in this in this sector. Lightning is quite a bit newer, needs more time to season. But I do believe that banks will end up providing payment channel operating payment channels, and that's going to provide a lot of liquidity to the Lightning Network. Now, for the purists who hate the idea that intermediaries might come in and provide uh, and operate payment channels. Here's the thing. You will always be able to transact in Bitcoin peer to peer. And same thing is true with Lightning. The liquidity I think will evolve to be in what I would call the lit channels that are KYC'd, that are operated by institutions. And that doesn't concern me as long as, from a privacy perspective, as long as the ability to transact outside of that is still true. Now, if you start transacting outside of that, it's just like, you know, if you, if you pull your assets off Coinbase into a hardware wallet, you're going to be deemed higher risk if you bring those assets back into the lit markets. Um, they're going to want to know where the assets went. They're going to want to know your source of funds, right? You're going to get more questions about your risk as a customer if you take assets into self-custody. So really that becomes a big calculation for, for folks um, over time in terms of who you, tr who you work with. There's going to be more liquidity in these liquid markets and less liquidity outside of them and higher risk outside of them. But the, but the, but the fact that markets still exist outside of them is what ensures the privacy and what ensures the solvency. The same thing's true by the internet, right? Um, it's not possible because of the way packets move around the internet to wall off entire parts of the internet. Now, you know, I guess with geofencing, you, you can do that to some degree, but packets will still move, you know, through, through to places on the internet that uh, aren't, aren't known to you and you haven't screened. Um, and, and so there's gonna be a lot more screening. In effect, it, makes the net, it, it limits the network effects, but it increases the liquidity. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's an interesting proposition you have there about, you know, the potential of the Lightning Network. And it seems like that's kind of, I guess, almost like the hot button topic right now, right? I mean, we have the Lightning Network, but there's been a lot of development of layer threes now, right? We have like Fediment, Liquid, Arc, Cashew, like just to name a few, it seems like there's a lot more uh, development as you know, I guess, uh, as the layers kind of expand on the Bitcoin network. So I guess do you see I, I banks sort of, I guess, having to develop with the time as like a lot more of these layers, a lot more of these protocols kind of develop on Bitcoin that they'll, you know, I guess regulation or so to speak, like, I, I guess some some more knowledge along these uh, side chains, drive chains, whatever you want to call them, uh, kind of come through um, that, you know, they'll, they'll have to understand how these things work in order to be, you know, I guess, Bitcoin custodians? 
Well, I mean, if anybody's going to dip their feet into Bitcoin and Ethereum, they darn well better have good developers, right? And there's an interesting question whether the best developers are going to go work for the big banks, right? The bank regulators certainly don't want anyone other than the big banks doing this, but I would argue it's exactly backwards that the, the big banks is, are not going to be able to recruit the talent that you're going to want if you're going to be able to do this right. Um, and so be careful, right? From the regulators' perspective, they, they like to apply in, you know, kind of, you know, fighting the last war, right? Um, thinking that only those that have, who have been bankified are the ones who should be working inside banks. Uh, and, you know, again, this allergic reaction to anything that's different, that doesn't quite fit in the supervisory exam manual as it's written today. Um, that's, that's, that's what banks, the bank regulators are trained to to mark down as riskier. And so again, this is where I think um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little optimistic that this novel activity supervision program, which has been announced and is being built, is going to at least acknowledge some of these things that they need to go out and, and work with, you know, actual Bitcoin developers rather than, you know, the folks in the banking industry. And they did say, to be fair, the Fed did say that it was going to be talking to academics and um, banking and technology and fintech um, to advise it on on this novel activity supervision program. So um, you know, let's see how that plays out, and we'll see if it if it means anything, um, it or whether it was just uh, just for show. It's certainly very very early stages. But um, coming back to your question on you know all the 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 development that's happening in Bitcoin and the debate around the different tooling. Uh, I think it's all wonderful and uh, I, I'm not a developer, so I'm not able to take sides because I'm not in the weeds on some of this, but uh, the Bitcoin as a governance model has proven itself to be solid. And I just go back to the user activated software. The, the, the game theory of Bitcoin is different than the game theory of other protocols. The game theory of Bitcoin really is designed to move slowly and be very careful with protocol changes, and um, and and I think that's I think that's great. It, I trust the the process because it's ultimately users who proved we control the Bitcoin network, not the core developers and not the miners and not the large service providers, including the road, probably BlackRock. It's the users of the Bitcoin network who control it. And remember, only 15% of the Bitcoins outstanding have transacted in the last six months. 85% of them are squirreled away. Some of them permanently lost. Most of the rest are folks like me who just never trade our Bitcoin and um, haven't moved them in years, right? So long story short, um, it's going to be easy for the big Wall Street firms to take over Bitcoin. That's a feature, not a bug. Amen to that. But before I let you go, I want to I want to take a dive down the, the relationship between, you know, Bitcoiners and banks, because it is kind of a, an interesting one that, you know, Bitcoiners kind of, you know, have this, uh, I guess, like anti-bank kind of kind of look in, into it. But you're obviously trying to, you know, I guess, change that narrative, so to speak. But there's yeah. there's been a shift in Bitcoin culture. There's been a lot of development in Bitcoin since you since you got in early on. So I guess, how do you see this relationship kind of playing out? And not only like, you know, Bitcoin, Bitcoiners kind of, I guess, maybe 
not trusting banks a little bit more, but, you know, understanding the process, but, uh, you know, having that relationship, I guess, get, get, get sort of mended, so to speak. Well, I think Bitcoiners understand that when you make a deposit in a bank, a fractional reserve bank, you're making an unsecured loan to a leveraged counterparty and that counterparty might fail. Right. And we watched all that with the banks that failed earlier this year. Um, so so Bitcoiners are definitely a lot more attuned to the concept of a bank that's not going to lend. So I think they understand conceptually that it's a counterparty credit risk issue. Uh, and um, but of course, then a bank that can't lend can't pay interest. So um, this is why I think there's such interest in the money market fund services that Custodia has introduced, because the deposit accounts are non-interest bearing by definition, because Custodia is not a lending bank. And they're not FDIC insured, so the F so so the government money market fund service um, has 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 been of of higher interest. But by the way, you're seeing that broadly in the economy across all banks. There's been a big increase in money market fund purchases and a big decline in deposits in banks. So I, I don't think that the relationship between Bitcoiners and banks has changed. I think Bitcoiners just have a better understanding of the counterparty credit risk of traditional banks. But folks, we still need traditional banks. Um, Bitcoin isn't going to completely replace the banking system, and it's certainly not going to do it in the short term. I'll close by saying that I think Lightning is a, is a very optimistic development for both the banks and the Bitcoiners. Because again, you want liquidity in the, in the Lightning payment channels. Lightning was never meant to be itself decentralized. Lightning is meant to be anchored to the layer one Bitcoin pro protocol, which is itself decentralized. So if you're going to have transactions, you want them to go through the payment channels, unless of course you're a criminal, in which case I don't want you using any of these protocols because you're just creating all kinds of problems for everybody. But if you're a law abiding citizen and you want to um, use the lightning protocol, you can transact in dollars. Here's the aha, ding, 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 ding. Uh, right now, Bitcoin is pretty small. It's a top 20 currency. Okay. But the US dollar is by far the largest. So how do you marry those two? The answer is the lightning network. 8 billion people in the United or in the world who have cell phones today could, if they knew how, download the lightning code and start transacting, creating and transacting in US dollars today. It is already here. It's just that the engineers haven't made the user interface easy enough. A lot of folks don't really understand how it works, right? We've seen the experiment in El Salvador with the Chivo wallet has had certainly some, some big successes, but some big misses too. Um, and this is going to take time. But uh, I do believe that US dollars are going to be moving on, on these payment rails. That's where I'm going. And this is how the, the, the system ultimately evolves. But, but it has to do it in a safe way where both, both sides don't hurt each other. Again, I don't want to see the U.S. dollar system hurt by Bitcoin. I don't want to see Bitcoin hurting the U.S. dollar. I don't want to see the U.S. dollar system, system hurting Bitcoin either. It's pretty clear they've both been hurting each other, and that's because of the regulatory moves, unfortunately. Um, but even that, over time, the U.S. is going to get its head out of sand and recognize this technology is not going away. It is global. We are being surpassed, including by places like Hong Kong, who are perfectly happy to... Step in and fill the void, including for U.S. dollar services for companies in this industry. Wow, that speaks volumes. 
Amen. And you've been very generous with your time. So thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, leaving us with that last little little nugget there. So everybody go check out Custodia Bank, see if it's available for you, support the cause. And uh, yeah, Caitlin, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Yep. Um, happy to have you reach out. Info at custodiabank.com, folks. Thanks all. <laughs>